Hello, everyone. I'm a little winded. Apologies for uh, being a couple minutes late. Second day in a row, I've been a little bit late. Let's see, how are we doing over here on Instagram? Okay, great. Hello, everyone. I'm a little bit winded because I ran into the house and then I ran upstairs and then I ran downstairs to get my water and then I ran back up. And uh, anyway, I really, as I said yesterday, I pride myself on being on time. And then today, for the second day in a row, I'm like two minutes late. So apologies there. Welcome everybody today, 40, four zero. We are in the fours. And remember that this is a 75-day reading challenge, right? 73 chapters in our textbook, which is Patriarchs and Prophets. There it is. Oh, did I turn my little phone to leave me alone? There we go. Okay. 75 days in our textbook, uh, 73 chapters, excuse me, in our textbook. And uh, so 75 days total. Today's day 40. Wow. I hope you've had a great day today. I've had a really good day. We had pretty significant snow over the last like two to three days. And then it was bitterly cold, like astonishingly cold. And then today, finally, it started to warm up a little bit in Fahrenheit. I think it was probably close to 30. And whenever you get a real cold snap in the winter, and then it starts to warm up, the birds are like extremely active. And so I spent uh, some time today uh, just sitting out and looking at the birds. And I even got some, some good video. Maybe I'll put it up on Instagram. Anyway, it's exciting. I know it's still only late February, but you can already start to feel, if you know what to look for, early indications of bird activity. And even there's a lot of um, uh, migrational movement with some of the species, some ducks and uh, some geese. So I know it's early and it's not yet spring, and I'm going to escape to Australia for like five weeks in a couple weeks. And so I'm going to miss actually my favorite part. My very favorite part of the uh, year seasonally is sort of spring. Well, I sh I, it's probably spring or fall. But when it comes to the birds, I love the spring. And already, if you know what to look for, you can start to see those little signs that the birds know it's warming up. And uh, we'll probably get at least another significant storm or two here in Colorado, but mm, it's happening. So that was my day today. I also spent, I had two meetings today and uh, spent some really good time reading, played my guitar, got some work done. I'm speaking at a big European Youth Congress thing later this year in Finland. I won't bore you with all the details, but uh, did some work on that. So I've had an awesome day. And let me tell you, let me tell you the highlight of my day. Okay, are you ready for this? If you're, if you're on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, you're going to love this. But probably the highlight of my day was this right here, right? I'll hold that up for Instagram to see. Take a screenshot of that. All right. If, if you can't see it there, I don't know if you can see it on YouTube, but Eva Saylor, I had it upside down. Apologies for that. <laughs> there it is. Right side up. Okay. Eva Saylor who uh, is on Twitter at least, and Instagram might also be on um, Facebook. She put together a, 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 a David Asherick bingo card. A bingo card. This is an actual thing. And uh, thank you to Mark for pointing it out to me. I would have seen it because it was a part of the OT with DA hashtag. And thank you, Eva, 
for using the hashtag. And uh, <laughs> now I'm following you, of course. So if any more, if you make a Ty Gibson bingo card, I can't wait to see that. But anyway, it's 25, right? Five by five with a free space in the middle of things that I say, right? Like my little sayings, little idiosyncrasies. And then I made the mistake of going down and reading the comments on the Instagram post and people were putting forward all these other um, possibilities and suggestions for David-isms. It's actually kind of embarrassing, actually. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think I've ever felt insecure, really, particularly in my life. It's just kind of not the way I'm wired. But I'll be totally honest with you, I'm really on edge. Like I'm wondering, okay, how many things have I already said? For example, I know that I started off talking about birds and that's right here on the bingo card, right? So uh, mentions birds. So there you go, bingo. Uh, here are the other ones very quickly, land and descendants. I do talk about that quite a little bit, especially if we're in Genesis. So I feel like there's a little qualifier there. We did spend time going through the book of Genesis, and that's the major feature of Genesis and even Exodus, the whole Pentateuch. So, okay, a little forgiveness there. Mentions rock climbing, guilty as charged. No, 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 no. Okay, I guess that's a thing I do. <laughs> it's funny. Now that people say these things to me, I'm like, oh, yeah, I do that. I just realized I didn't put my reading glasses on. I keep them here. It's funny, when you get old and your eyes go out, you have glasses to see things close, glasses to see things far away. Ah, there we go. Now I can see. Look at that. Um, so it's really kind of funny. Like, I, I recognize these, but several of them I wouldn't have known until I saw them in this context. So, Eva, God bless you. Um, so here we go. No, 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 no. This is so cool. Yeah, I definitely say that. I say that a lot. Um, Violetta is amazing. Hey, no apologies for that. I stand by that. She is amazing. I tell her all the time. She's the best wife I've ever had. In fact, I tell her no comparison because literally there is no comparison. I've never been married to anybody else. So I stand by Violetta is amazing. I'm going to keep this under an hour. Okay. This one pierced my heart just a little bit because I have the best of intentions to say things in a certain amount of time, I think what I need to start saying is just to say, this will be under two hours. And very likely I can do that, right? So if I say this will be under two hours, it'll be true. If I say this will be under an hour, you know, and I know that that's not true. Now, unmistakably, Melissa accused me of lying. That's not a lie because I'm not purposefully going long. I'm not rebelliously or defiantly that's an important word for today's chapter, by the way, going long. But anyway, I, okay, apologies. I won't say that ever again by the grace of God. I will never again say that this will be under an hour. Uh, the penny drops. Yeah, that's true. I do say that quite a little bit. That's an Australianism, and I just like it. Romans chapter one, you know the irony of that? Today, on at least one occasion and probably two in our chapter, chapter 39, I'm going to mention Romans chapter one. So prepare yourself for that. Um, hey, Gabby Abby, that's true. It's really fun to say. If you've never said it, just say it a few times and you'll see it really rolls off the, the tongue, rolls out of the mouth in a nice, enjoyable way. Gabby Abby, it's fun to say. So I'm not going to back off of that one either. Woo, I guess this is a thing that I do. I didn't, I guess I know now that I do that, but I didn't realize that that's a thing I do. 
Okay, a few more here. Thermometer or thermostat? Yeah, I'm sorry. I've just been saying that for so many years to my sons, especially as they got into their sort of preteens and in teen years. That's just a part of my sort of dad DNA. Um, I bought donuts. Uh, this is seasonal with me. It's really funny. I can go, I can go a whole year and not buy any donuts or eat any donuts, and then I'll just go through this like, <laughs> and I'll tell you, part of what's happening here is that I found that when I drive on the main street, actually the two main streets, I can go this way or this way when I go to Denver, both of those ways have a donut shop. And uh, it's just so funny. Sometimes I'm just driving right by. Maybe you've had this experience. It's almost supernatural. You're driving right by and all of a sudden you, you just you find yourself pulling in. I don't know how it happens. I'm driving by, minding my own business. And before you know it, I'm at the donut shop. Can anybody else relate to this? So yeah, that's true. It is a little seasonal with me. Sometimes I'm not really into it. And then other times I get these cravings. And then other times my car, right? Just right into the donut shop. Um, quote C.S. Lewis, guilty is charged. That's true. Purple haired punk rocker. Yeah, I've said that for years. And, and the funny thing is, is that I had lots of different colors of hair, right? Blonde hair and yellow hair and green hair and blue hair, no hair, dreadlocked hair. So I don't know why I always say purple. I need to stop saying that. I need, to, I need to diversify a little bit. Okay, a couple more here. Deep dive. I, do I say that a lot? Is that a thing I say? I'm, I'm, I mean, I take your word for it, Eva, but I feel like that's not a thing I say very often. I'm looking for some encouragement here. Is that true or not? Do I say deep dive? I know you're a little delayed here. Let me see. Anybody going to give me some feedback? Is that a thing that I say? Okay, Hannah says, I rarely say that. Okay. All right, anyway, people are making fun of my hair now. Okay, deep dive. If that's the thing I say, I don't know it. Incredible. Yeah, that's probably one of my favorite adjectives. I say that a lot. A few more here. Uses words that nobody has ever heard before, like peripatetic or perspicacity. That's true. I love words. Um, she is such a great writer. Well, yeah. Yeah, hello, we're reading, that's true, that's true, guilty as charged, because we're reading these amazing books that are commentaries on the most amazing book, the Bible, and again and again, I just find myself being so thankful for the gift of clarity and communication and just writing skill. Writing is a skill. If, if you are not a writer, then you don't really know. It's a skill. It's like riding a unicycle or juggling or walking a tightrope. I mean, it's a skill that you have to learn. And some people are just really good writers. C.S. Lewis was a really good writer. Ellen White's a really good writer. And so I feel like I could say this at almost every paragraph, like that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. But then there are just some, those mountain peaks where I'm like, wow, that is so well communicated. Like, remember yesterday we had that little line there about Moses. Uh, what did she say? Six score winters. Their, their hair was as white as six score winters or something like that. Really cool. Okay, mentions New Zealand. That's true. Guilty as charged. I used to tell people that I'm an evangelist for Jesus and I'm an evangelist for New Zealand. New Zealand is my favorite country in the Southern Hemisphere. Norway is my favorite country geographically in the Northern Hemisphere. And interestingly enough, New Zealand is really the Norway of the Southern Hemisphere, and Norway is the New Zealand of the Northern Hemisphere. So they're very similar, actually, in a lot of ways. Theodicy, yeah, that's true. That's my doctor. That's true. When I'm greeting people, I often will, will say, hey, that's my doctor. 
I love my sons. That's just like the Violetta is amazing one. Guilty as charged. And then this one, I guess I do say this. Underline it, circle it, put a box around it. So Eva, thank you so much for doing this. Um, it It's created a mild amount of insecurity in me, maybe even a little, I don't know, maybe it's awareness or a little insecurity because now I'm wondering, are there actually people at home who've printed this out like I have and who are playing bingo? <laughs> oh, you guys are great. All right, here we go. We are in chapter 39 and uh, day 40, as I've already mentioned. Oh, did I? Oh, did I not fill this out? Oh, how did I do that? Man, I took all of these notes today and I didn't fill this out. I This will be the first time, I guess I just got busy. This will be the first time since we started OT with DA that I didn't properly write out the point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise. So you're, you're going to just kind of get this one on the fly. Um, that is so unusual. I guess I just blanked it. Okay. So we are in, well, I don't need this. This isn't going to do me any good. <laughs> Put this away. That's a little embarrassing. Oops. Sorry about that. I did read the chapter repeatedly, and I'll just say this. Uh, chapter 39, The Conquest of Bashan, 526 in Types and Symbols, and 433 of the original. Real talk here. When I read this chapter through the first time, I was like, eh, meh. I wasn't loving it. And then I read it through a second time, and then I read it through a third time, and now I love it. I absolutely love it because even though it's short, there are some gems in here. And one of the things I'm most excited about in this chapter is to see what your word is, because I think I've got the right word, right? I say the right word. For me, the right word that really captures what, what I got out of this chapter and what the Holy Spirit spoke to me about in this chapter but sometimes, you know, I show up and like yesterday we had the word look and it just sort of felt like that was going to be everybody's word. And it was like 75% of the people that at least were chiming in on Instagram were like, my word was look, my word was look, my word was look. So often you can just sort of tell like it's going to be one of these three words or one of these five words. I'll be very interested to see today, and we've had a few of these in our OT with DA challenge, if anybody else has the same word that I have, because I love my word. I'm excited about this one. So, all right, let's uh, pray. We're going to get into this, and I'm excited. Short chapter. This will not be under an hour. <laughs> Father in heaven, we love you so much, but we know the big story is not our love for you. It's your love for us, Father. Our love for you is just a drop in the ocean of love that is your love to us. And so, Father, help us, especially those that struggle with insecurity and doubt and, and self-hatred, Father, help us to see ourselves through your eyes. We can see that others are valuable. We can see that, that others are unique and wonderful. Father, help us to see ourselves that way, to see that, that we are your sons and your daughters, that you love us and that you see good in us. Father, we do have faults and frailties. We have insecurities and, and things that we need to let go of. But Father, you look to us and you don't see what we aren't. You see what we can be. And Father, the prayer of my heart is that you would just reveal yourself to us in this chapter, an interesting chapter, uh, as we're right now on the conquest. Well, actually, we're beginning the conquest of Canaan with Israel of old. And so speak to us is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, are you ready? 
So today's chapter, chapter 39, is based on Deuteronomy chapter 2, which I reread. We've actually already read Deuteronomy chapter 2, if you've been keeping up. And then the first 11 verses of Deuteronomy 3, which largely tells the story of this Og of Bashan. Let me just turn there. It's actually kind of a humorous verse here. I'm in Genesis. Deuteronomy, kind of a humorous verse here in Deuteronomy 3. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So Deuteronomy chapter 2 and chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Um, Let's just sort of remind ourselves where we've come from and what happens in this chapter. Okay, basically, and I'm really embarrassed that I didn't write my notes down. That's so, I don't know what happened. I guess I just got busy and I had meetings today and I thought I had done it. Strangest thing. So here's the deal. In this chapter, we basically have two events or two conquests, two battles that are the whole chapter orbits around these two ideas. So in the last chapter, chapter 38, we had the brief little mention of the Israelites conquering or defeating of Arad or Arad or however you say it, um, the Canaanite, a Canaanite king. And then in today's chapter, we see Israel defeating Sihon, the Amorite, and then Og, the king of Bashan. Okay? So that's really what today's chapter about. It, chapter is about. It's not, it's a short chapter, and it's not the best chapter by any means. I mean, I would be surprised if any person on earth in all of, you know, the history of people that have read this book would read all 73 chapters and say, you know what my favorite chapter is? 39, the conquest of Bashan. And so while it's not like the very best chapter, there are some real gems in here. And um, let's walk through it. Let's walk through it. The first thing that jumped out at me is right there in the opening paragraph. This is uh, kind of interesting. Let's just read this here. After the passing to the south of Edom, the Israelites turned north. And again, they set their faces toward the promised land, right? They're right on the threshold of the promised land. Their route now lay over a vast elevated plain, right? Mount Hor is in the rearview mirror. Aaron's death has transpired. His grave is at the summit of Mount Hor. And so now they're making their way back north. And it says, the route now lay over a vast elevated plain swept by cool, fresh breezes from the hills. Beautiful. It was a welcome change from the parched valley through which they had been traveling. And I thought this was interesting. This is what jumped out at me. And they pressed forward buoyant and hopeful. Now, I don't know if you had this same experience, but when I read that, I was like, what? Buoyant and hopeful? Let me just remind you of what we were reading only about five pages ago, page 519, 428 of the original. How about this? By continually dwelling on the dark side of their experiences, they separated themselves farther and farther from God. We talked about that yesterday. And then in that same paragraph, and finally, they became discontented with everything. Okay, so I think we can safely say that the Israelites are temperamental. They are fickle. Because just five pages ago, they're down about everything. They're depressed about everything. This depression and discontent is disconnecting them from Yahweh. And then here we are, all of a sudden, they're hopeful and buoyant. I didn't expect to see those adjectives, honestly. I wasn't prepared for that. Because kind of the last place that we left them was... Uh, the death of Aaron, where they mourned for 30 days, and then the serpents that came into the camp. And of course, you know, it was miraculous, wonderfully miraculous, the raising of the brazen serpent on the pole. And so maybe that's the cause. 
But anyway, they're on this sort of plateau. They're walking, and she says that they're buoyant and hopeful. Having crossed the brook Zered, they passed to the east of the land of Moab. For the command had been given, do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given R to the descendants of Lot. And the same direction was repeated concerning the Ammonites, who were also the descendants of Lot. And so one of the things that we see here is that Again, God is not just indiscriminately giving anything that the Israelites want to them. Remember this great line from yesterday's chapter? I loved this. I mentioned it yesterday, but I'm going to remind us of it. This is page 514, 424. Paragraph begins, the ancestors of Edom. Remember this. While the Israelites were the chosen and favored people of God, they must heed the restrictions which he had placed upon them. God had promised them a goodly inheritance but they were not to feel that they alone had any rights in the earth and seek to crowd out all the others. They were directed in all their interaction with the Edomites to beware of doing them an injustice. Same thing here. So with the descendants of Esau and then now with the descendants of Lot, the Ammonites, the Israelites were not just given universal sort of indiscriminate, take whatever you want, right? This isn't like a the looting of the area in and around the promised land. No, it was a very specific piece of real estate, a very specific area that was given to the descendants of Abraham for the purposes of influencing the surrounding nations. And I think this is important to bear in mind because sometimes the way that the Old Testament story is told is this like genocidal, megalomaniacal, um, you know, manifest destiny where they can just take what they want, they can slaughter who they want. That's not what's going on right? It's a specific plot of land that was given to them to be taken in a specific way. We'll get to that in just a second. And so I thought this was important, that just as with the descendants of Esau, so too here with the descendants of Lot. So they come up to the country of the Amorites, and she describes the Amorites with kind of some interesting language. Several phrases here alert us to the fact that the Amorites were a warring people, a people that were accustomed to hostility, as most people's in the ancient world would have been because it was kind of the survival of the fittest. I mean, either you conquered or you were conquered, right? And so she describes them as a strong and warlike people. Next page, page 527, 434 of the original, she says um, that they were uh, a formidable army. And then she says, and I want to highlight this, Moses sends this friendly message, very much like the message that he sent when they wanted to pass through the land of the Edomites. And, you know, the message sounds very much the same. Let me pass through your land. I'm going to keep strictly to the road. I'm not going to turn to the right or to the left. If you sell me, uh, you know, if there's any food to be had, we'll pay for it. If there's any water to be uh, had, we'll pay for it. It's, it's fair, right? Really fair. And then the Amorites say no. Now, remember that it was Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, in which God, some 400 years before, had said to Abraham that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. Now, the Amorites here is writ large for all of the Canaanite tribes that occupied the promised land, but here we are, right? We are now some 400 years later, and whereas when the promise was originally given back to Abraham, the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full, as we're going to see here, it is now full. It is now full, and Israel arrives, and this friendly sort of request is given, but they were a strong warlike people. They were a formidable army. And then this, this formidable army had struck terror to the Israelites who were poorly prepared for an encounter with well-armed and well-disciplined forces. 
to all human appearance, a speedy end would be made of Israel. Okay, and I wrote here in the margin, yeah, this is by design. By design, the, the Israelites spent a year at the base of Sinai. What were they learning? I actually wrote this in my, in my uh, margin here. For the year at Sinai's base, they weren't practicing military maneuvers and combat skills. No. They were learning righteousness. They were learning the law. They were learning about the sanctuary and the ordinances of God. So this was by design. God wasn't saying to them, okay, work on your marching, work on your swordsmanship, work on your military maneuvers and your, you know, person-to-person skills. No. No, 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 no. Oh, there's my no, no, no. There we go. Okay, there's one of them um, on the bingo card. No, the idea here is that they were to learn righteousness. They were God's people, and God was going to lead them. Just as he had led them out of Egypt, right, with a strong arm, he was going to lead them into the promised land with a strong arm. And no one could say that the Israelites, the shepherds turned slaves that were coming out of Egypt, were in any sense a warlike people. And even after their, you know, nearly a year at the base of Sinai, they were no more prepared for war, right? So, so this is by design. When she says that they were poorly prepared for an encounter with well-armed and well-disciplined forces, let that sink into your brain. Why? Why were they? Well, they had time. Not only did they have the year at Sinai's base, but now they've had 40 years where they could have been practicing their fighting skills and their military maneuvers. But that's not what God is doing. God's plan has never been about Israel's military prowess. It's been about their faith in him, their belief in him. We're going to come to that at the end of this. And so um, all of the people are looking to Moses, and she makes this great point where she says in the next paragraph, but Moses kept his gaze fixed on the cloudy pillar, and uh, the cloudy pillar begins to move forward, and then I'll just continue down a little bit lower in that paragraph. Their enemies were eager for battle and confident that they would blot out the unprepared Israelites. There it is again, right? She says it, poorly prepared, unprepared. It's by design. They were not supposed to be a warlike people. Just a reminder, all the way back in Genesis chapter 14, I know I've mentioned this before, but it bears uh, repeating in this context. When Abraham launched the rescue mission after Lot, his nephew, had been kidnapped, God essentially says to Abraham, look, I didn't bring you into this land to get into all of these kerfuffles and skirmishes with the tribes that reside here. That's not the plan, right? Like, I got another plan, and it's not about you becoming a mighty warrior and, and, you know, sort of taking over by the sword all of these nations. We've already seen, remember this, fast forwarding from Abraham to Moses, remember the first three times Moses in Exodus, autobiographically, when he tells us about himself, he's telling us that he was kind of a kind of a tough guy, right? He strikes the Egyptian and he dies. The next day he's breaking up an argument between two Israelites. And then when he flees to Midian and the shepherds there are sort of harassing the, the women, the daughters of, support, of, uh, of uh, Jethro, he kind of comes in and kicks some butt. So, so Moses alerts us to the fact that his natural inclination was to kind of do it by force, to get her done. But he unlearned that in the 40 years in the Midianite wilderness, and then now he has further unlearned it in the 40 years with Israel. Very cool, actually, when you think about it, that, that Moses probably would have been able to teach them some hand-to-hand combat skills. I mean, he killed a man with his bare hands, and he probably could have taught them some military maneuvers, but that's not what they were learning. They were learning the sanctuary. They were learning the ordinances. They were learning the law. 
They were learning about the priesthood and the sacrificial system. Very cool. Okay, so they're unprepared. And then I love this. And here we go. Underline it, mark it, put a box around it, highlight it. I like this. But from the possessor of all lands. Note that and note that well. What a, what a great way to talk about God in this context. Right? But God made the earth. The earth is his and the fullness thereof, right? He not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he owns the hills too. Everything is his. He is the creator. He is the sovereign of the universe. And so when she says here that he's the possessor of all lands, this is basically saying that God had a legal and moral right to give the land to whoever he chose to give it to, right? It's his land. He made it. He fashioned it. He dreamt it. He created it. And so very clever theological use of this title for God, the possessor of all lands, to use that right at the time when Israel is about ready to take possession of the land that had been promised to their forefather, Abraham. So then God speaks to Moses and says, I know it looks overwhelming. I know it doesn't look good. I know that the Israelites are not optimistic, but I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite, king of Hezbon, and his land. Go in, begin to possess it, engage him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven. She's quoting here from Deuteronomy 3. Then this section, okay, this is too good. This is the next paragraph, and you have to highlight all of this. This is all crucial, one of the gems that I spoke of there. The nations on the borders of Canaan would have been spared. Underline it. Mark it. Put a box around it. Would have been spared. Had they not stood in defiance, important word, used three times in this chapter. Defiant, defiance. And I'm going to tell you the meaning of that word at the very end, what the actual etymology of that word is. Key word. It's a word that Ellen White comes back to one, two, three times in this chapter. So she says they would have been spared had they not stood in defiance of God's word to oppose the progress of Israel. And then this line, so great, so beautiful. The Lord had shown himself to be long-suffering, that is to say patient, of great kindness and tender pity even to these heathen peoples. Yes, yes, you just read that. So again, get this picture out of your mind of this indiscriminate massacre, this manifest destiny, megalomaniacal overtaking, right? There's no analog here for what's happening right now, for example, with Russia and Ukraine, right? This is a territorial battle, and Russia's going in and saying, this now belongs to us. Well, listen, I'm not going to get involved in the politics of that, except to say, I highly doubt, in fact, I'm absolutely certain, that Yahweh did not appear to Vladimir Putin and said, this is now your land and I will fight for you. I will go in. This is not just land acquisition for acquisition's sake. That's what nations have been doing down through the whole of human history. This is different. God has given this land legally and morally to the Israelites. Not only did he give it, he gave the current inhabitants, the pre-Israelite inhabitants of the land, centuries to get their act together centuries to be worthy of the land. And so this is so well communicated here. The Lord had shown himself to be long-suffering of great kindness and tender pity, even to these heathen people. 
She then quotes, as you might expect, from Genesis 15, 16. And I'm turning the page here, that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then another gem, an absolute gem in that next sentence there, top of page 528, 435 of the original, although the Amorites were idolaters whose life was justly forfeited by their great wickedness. Underline that, my friends. So much good theology there. And it really gives us an insight into how God is relating to the conquest of Canaan. Let's go through each word. Whose life was justly, that means righteously, fairly, morally, not capriciously, not arbitrarily, whose life was justly forfeited. What a fascinating word in this context. What is to forfeit something? It's to give up, right? Like if, if I forfeit a game, I give up. If I forfeit my resources or assets to you, I give them over to you. So, so every person that's alive, including every person on the Instagram live and everybody that's tuning into YouTube, your life is not yours. You didn't create your life. You didn't choose to be born. This, this body isn't yours. Today, uh, my oldest son, Landon, called me up on the phone and said, hey, dad, I was having a conversation in the cafeteria. He's at university. And he said, somebody was asking me about tattoos. And, uh, you know, they were wondering what I thought about getting tattoos. And I said, well, I don't really think it's a good idea. But they wanted like a biblical, you know, some biblical reasoning for not getting a tattoo. So he said, Dad, what do you think? And I said to him what I say to people all the time. The problem with getting tattoos, and I have several of them, I regret every one of them, is that a tattoo is a permanent mark on a body that doesn't belong to you. Right? And I know we operate under the illusion that because I travel around in this body and I'm intimately familiar with this body, I think it's my body. It's not really my body. I didn't make it. I didn't create it. I didn't purchase it. I'm not owed it. This, this body, according to the New Testament, according to the Old Testament by implication and the New Testament explicitly, this body belongs to God. Paul says, you are not your own. And so what right do I have to take a body that does not belong to me and do something that permanently disfigures my body? Well, I don't. And so the idea here that my body is mine or that my life is mine, fascinating the use of the word forfeit here, right? Whose life was justly forfeited. They chose death. They gave up their life by their great wickedness. Okay, so in a way, you could say it like this. God is not killing them so much as he is honoring their choice to be separated voluntarily from their own life. They're forfeiting their life. Oh man, there's just such great theology there. We actually saw a version, a couple versions of this yesterday. I'll just quickly remind you. Remember that great line where I had you insert the word own? I'll just read it here for you in case you'd forgotten. This is on page 515, 425. God had given the people water in answer to their clamors, but he permitted their unbelief to work out its own punishment. The consequences, the results, and the wages of sin is death. And so this line is so theologically sound and helpful and meaningful, right? The iniquity of the Amorites is now full. They were given centuries to right themselves and to orient themselves to truth, to justice. And by the way, by the way, you don't have to be perfect, right? Are the Edomites perfect? No, but God said you can't touch their land. 
Were the descendants of Lot perfect, right? The Moabites? No, they were not perfect or anything. In other words, all you have to be is not so wicked and so ridiculous and so defiant to Yahweh that you're forfeiting your own life. So don't think for a moment here that God is, again, just indiscriminately saying, oh yeah, anybody that's not an Israelite, whack them. That's not what he's saying. These were particularly rebellious tribes, defiant tribes. The wickedness here, whether temple prostitution, child sacrifice, or other forms of generational wickedness was such that God said they need to be blotted from the face of the earth. And we talk about this in uh, the supplemental session with John. So highlight that, whose life was justly forfeited by their great wickedness. Um, in that same paragraph there, and this is where I'm going to quote Romans chapter 1, right? Because in Romans chapter 1, let me just read to you Romans 1, 18 and 19. I've got it right here. Romans 1, 18 and 19. And listen, this is clearly the language that Ellen White is drawing on here. Romans 1, 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The text doesn't say that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the unrighteous or against the ungodly, but against their unrighteousness and their ungodliness. And when people so identify themselves with unrighteousness and ungodliness, then they forfeit their right to life. She continues, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, then verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them because God has shown it to them. God has shown it to them. Okay, now go back and read where we're at right there. The last sentence in that uh, paragraph, uh, still on page 528, sufficient evidence was given. They might have known the truth. And have they been willing to turn from their idolatry and licentiousness? That's Romans 1, idolatry and sexual immorality. But they rejected the light and clung to their idols. That is Romans 1, 18 and 19. God doesn't do this. God doesn't do this by surprise. He doesn't say, gotcha. No, no, they knew that they were living contrary to what was right, right? They didn't have the revealed will of God, such as the Israelites did uh, in Torah, but they had the voice of conscience and the voice of the Spirit speaking to them. And generation after generation, century after century, they oriented themselves away from Yahweh, defiant of Yahweh, and they forfeited their right to live. And she says they could have known, but they clung to their sexual immorality and their idolatry, and therefore they forfeited their right, justly forfeited their right to life because of their great wickedness. Um, so then she, in the next paragraph, I'll speed up here a little bit, she talks about how when, they, when the Israelites were traveling through, she says, quote, they had shown no hostility, right? And uh, she talks about the rules, this is very good, the same rules that had governed their interaction with other nations. So even when they got to the borders of the Amorites, they didn't just go in and start indiscriminately and wantonly killing people. No, they sent the friendly letter, right? They at, no, and, and this is where it became obvious that Sihon, the Amorite king, was gonna come out. He wasn't gonna have it. And so then we come to the second use of the word defiantly. So right down there toward the end of that same paragraph that begins, when the Lord brought his people, go down to the very end of it. Um, on reaching the border of the Amorites, Israel had asked permission. Okay, here again, as with the escalation in Egypt, we see here a very reasonable request, right? Remember the original request of Pharaoh in Egypt was, let my children go that they may have a feast to me for three days in the wilderness. This is reasonable. Read it again. On reaching the border of the Amorites, Israel had asked permission only to travel directly through the country. 
promising to observe the same rules that had governed their interaction with the other nations, the Moabites, the Edomites, etc. When the Amorite king refused this courteous solicitation and defiantly, there it is, mark it, the second use, that's a key word here, defiantly gathered his host for battle, their cup of iniquity was now full. And then now here, God would exercise his power for their overthrow. Okay, one of the punchlines in this chapter is seven times, and I'll point them out, seven times in this chapter, she is expressly clear that the conquest of Canaan was something God did in his power. At least, excuse me, in these cases, in the conquering of Arad and Sihon and Og and their armies, She's going to say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. Seven times she's going to say, yeah, this was, a, this was God's power. God did this. So there's the first one. Number one, make a note of it right there. God would now exercise his power for their overthrow. And then sure enough, the next paragraph says they go into the battle and they win what could only be described as a miraculous battle, right? Because we've already noted that the Israelites are unprepared and poorly prepared and that the Amorites are a formidable army of strong and warlike people. Okay, so, you know, if, if this is a sports team, the, the Amorites are the, you know, whatever, I don't know how odds work, but they're the, they're, the, they're the, not the underdog. They're the ones that are expected to win, right? And then Israel is the massive underdog. It's like a, it's like a college football team playing the Super Bowl champions, right? Or a high school basketball team playing the NBA champions, right? Like anybody's looking at that and they're saying, well, we know who's going to win this, but they win. And, and they win because God has gone with them. God has gone for them. And God has gone before them because this is a judgment from God. It's not a national or tribal scuffle. Man, I can't make that point strongly enough. This is not about nation rising against nation. This is, again, not just land acquisition, as nations have been doing since the dawn of time, and is happening right now between Russia and Ukraine. That's not what's happening here. God has made a promise. The people have been given centuries to, to right the wrongs. They have chosen not to do that, and so God is dispossessing them. He's driving them off of the land that they have no legal or moral right, moral right to. This is very important to understand. And so, Everybody would have looked around. The Israelites would have looked around and said, well, this was clearly God. Like, we could not have done this, right? You can just see them. They're going into battle. They've got little pails on their heads and sticks in their hands, and yet they're going against a warlike people, and they win unexpectedly, miraculously. And so then here's number two, the second uh, example of the second instance of seven in which Ellen White expressly says that this was God's battle. This was a thing that Jesus was doing. She says, it was the captain of the Lord's host who vanquished the enemies of his people. Great language. The captain of the Lord's host. Love that. That's the second instant. Okay, well, you can imagine after this decisive and unexpected and miraculous battle is won against Sihon and the Amorites, uh, the next paragraph says they were filled with hope and courage and right? This is very much like what we already read. They were buoyant and hopeful. Man, it's all coming up roses. They're feeling good. They're moving forward. And they feel like they're right on the cusp of occupying the land. It just feels like there's this 
resolution, finally, this catharsis, like, wow, this is actually happening and God is going with us. The problem is, is that they then come to Bashan, and this is where they encounter, I guess, the Bashanites. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but the the people of Bashan, she says, occupy these great stone cities. She's quoting now, this is Deuteronomy 3, 1 to 11. And uh, she says, the houses were constructed of huge black stones of such stupendous size as to make the buildings absolutely impregnable to any force that in those times could have been brought against them. It was a country filled with wild caverns, lofty precipices, yawning gulfs, and rocky strongholds. Can I just say that sounds like exactly where I would want to live? Every one of those sounds attractive to me. It sounds like Wyoming. Wild caverns, check. Lofty precipices, check. Yawning gulfs, check. And rocky strongholds, check. That's, this is where I go on vacation, right? This is where I go backpacking. This is where I go rock climbing. This is where I go trail running. This is, hey, yeah, this sounds like my kind of place. But the problem is, is that the people that occupy this land, and I'll just use a few of her adjectives here, marvelous, it, marvelous in size and strength, Known for their violence and cruelty, they were a terror. They were also skillful in the art of war. Okay, well, this is also not looking good at all. And then now we come to the third of seven instances where God is going to lead them in battle. And that's right at the beginning of that paragraph on page 529, 436 of the original. But the cloudy pillar moved forward. That's number three. They're not at the pointy end of the spear. Israel's not at the pointy end of the spear. Who's at the pointy end of the spear? Yahweh. The cloudy pillar is going before them, just as it did in Egypt. God is doing this. Again, not mere land acquisition. It's not a genocidal, megalomaniacal land acquisition. No, this is a legal and moral forfeiting of the land and of their lives by generationally and incorrigibly wicked people, and God is dispossessing them. That's what's going on here. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to pretend like there aren't difficult passages in the Old Testament. There are, but I have no problem with this. I don't know how you feel. Um, I, I'm totally happy with God punishing injustice and bringing judgments on people that are incorrigibly, defiantly, wicked, cruel, oppressive, and violent. I don't have a problem with that right? These people were given ample opportunity for salvation. And as we've already noted back on, I think, page 388 of the types and symbols, that God judges thousands in order to save millions, right? In the same way that if a terrible tumor or an invasive, a seriously invasive surgery had to be done on your arm or on your leg in order to save your body, you would consent to that. So I'm not pretending like this is totally easy and that there aren't difficult passages. By the way, I preached a long sermon that I researched the genocides of the Old Testament probably six years ago now, and you can find it on the Kingscliff YouTube channel. It's called Jesus, Jehovah, and Genocide. And I think it has like 40 or 50,000 views. Like a lot of people have watched that sermon, and it was not an easy sermon to preach. I basically go through 10 indicators of uh, 10 points of how we should understand these so-called genocides. Jesus, Gen uh, Jesus, Jehovah, and genocide. So you can look that up. It's on the Kingscliff YouTube channel. If you just type into YouTube Asherick genocide, which sounds a little weird, to be honest, 
If you type in asterisk genocide, it'll come up. So then we go to the next paragraph there, still on page 529. Paragraph begins, confident of success. Confident of success, the king came forth with an immense army, right? So this is Og now of Bashan, while shouts of defiance, third and final time. So clearly this is an important word here for Ellen White in this chapter. Theologically and thematically, the word defiance or defiant is crucial. And so I thought to myself, what do what that word means? Like I know what it means in sort of ordinary usage, but it can often be helpful to look up the, the origins of a word, what's called the etymology. Where did the word come from? How did it originate? And I was fascinated to learn that defiant actually comes from two words, dis or d, which means without, right? And then faithfulness or trust, right? From the word fide, right? Like fidelity. Very interesting. So, so defiance means without trust or without faithfulness. No wonder then it kind of means like rebelliousness. This is so interesting because now follow me on this brief point here. When Israel had first arrived 40 years before or 38 years before at the borders of the Canaan land, they were the ones that were defiant. Follow this. They were the ones that refused to go in when God bid them go in. They didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb. Instead, they listened to the evil report of the 10 spies. They refused to go in. They were without faithfulness. They were literally unbelieving. And that's what Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19 says. We've already discussed that, right? They could not enter in because of their unbelief, because of their distrust, because of their defiance. The word defiance means without trust or without faithfulness to set yourself in opposition to whatever the thing is. And there are times where it's okay to be defiant. If you're defiant against evil or you're defiant against oppression or you're defiant against injustice, that's fine and good. But in three instances in this chapter, when Ellen White is beginning to tell the story of the conquest of Canaan, don't miss this, she uses that word three times, defiant, defiance, defiant. This is such a great insight. It's a grammatical insight and it's a theological insight. They have literally set themselves against God. They have set themselves against faithfulness, against Yahweh. Well, what are God's options here? Just to eternally, perennially tolerate wickedness and, and cruelty and hostility and, and a gross perversion of how God created human beings to live? No, God's under no moral or legal obligation to tolerate that. He's already done it for that probationary period of four centuries. And so I'm not pretending that it's all nice and neat and clean, but me personally, I don't have a problem with this. As a parent, you learn to detect pretty quickly and generally pretty accurately, if you're a good parent, the difference between a mistake, a failure, an inattentive moment, and rebellion and defiance. And a good parent will make a very strong distinction and a clear distinction between how one is addressed and how the other is addressed. If my son forgot something, if one of my sons forgot something, or they were inattentive, or in a moment of, you know, frustration or passion or calorie deficiency, they lashed out and said something they wish they hadn't said, or did something they wish they hadn't done, okay, you know, there's going to be a consequence associated with that, but it's, it's going to be a redemptive and rehabilitative consequence. But if there's rebellion, if there's defiance, and you can detect that. Fortunately, we didn't have a lot of that with our children. Some, certainly. And when it happened, uh, yeah, you got to deal with that very differently. 
right? You're not looking so much for rehabilitation and redemption as punishment, as cutting short. That, that attitude's not going to work in this house. I'll just give you one sort of illustration. And I learned this from my, my father, Richard, and I'm so thankful for it. One of the things that my dad, and I think I really came to respect him for this because he was my adoptive dad, right? Like he wasn't my biological dad. And my mom was my biological mom. I loved my mom. My mom is the one that carried me around in her body. She, she, she bore me. She fed me. She took care of me. And dad number one did not stick around. And dad number two did not stick around. But dad number three stuck around. And in my early teens, I began to realize, well, this dad's a different kind of dude. He's a real dude. And I voluntarily and my brother voluntarily chose to take his name, Asherick. And it's a name that I, frankly, am proud of. I, I chose this name. I'm not going to take the name of a guy that abandoned me and then uh, the name of another guy that abandoned my brother. That's not going to work, right? I even considered at one point changing my name to my grandparents' last name, which was Atkins. But when this guy, Richard Asherick, turned out to be a real dude and he loved myself and my brother and my sister and then his two children that he brought to the marriage, I was like, I like this guy, but let me tell you one thing. My father, who spent 32 or 36 years in the military, one thing he would not tolerate was any member of his family speaking unkindly or um, rebelliously or defiantly to our mother. He would not take that. And at first, I, you know, I was like, whoa, this guy means business. But then I came to respect him for it. I thought, wow, this guy, this guy cares as, at least as much about my mom as I do. And so at first, even though I was a teenager and I didn't like it, that he was coming at me hard if I ever disrespected my mother, later I began to realize, hey, that was really good. And then I adopted that exact posture with my children. Now, fortunately, as I've said, I have, we have two wonderful boys. But there were, of course, with teenage boys and all of the energy that comes along with that, and just the normal sort of frictions that happen in a family, there were times where the boys would speak in a way that was disrespectful or unkind or defiant to their mother. And I had a zero not a 1% flexibility or to zero tolerance for that. And I would say to my boys, I, and they've heard me say this many times. If they were here, they would say, yeah, dad has said that many times. And I'd say, boys, you listen to me right now. You listen to me and you listen to me very clearly. That woman that you were speaking to in that way, she carried you in her body. You were inside of her. She carried you around. She had achy backs and an achy back and cramps and difficulties. And then you came out of her body, but not in the normal way. Unfortunately, both of you were cesareans, and that was major surgery. You came out of her. You, you caused her to be scarred, okay? And then now, or excuse me, even after that, then she would get up in the middle of the night. She would feed you. She would take care of you. She nursed you at her breast. I mean, this woman has wiped your bottom more times than you've wiped your own bottom. And so let me just be very clear. You are not ever, under any circumstances in this home, going to speak to that woman in that way, am I clear? And they were like, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. They knew. They, they learned real quick. And fortunately, I didn't have to give that speech very many times after the age of about seven or eight because they, they figured it out real quick. Like, there's certain things, you know, you can be flexible on, I can work with you on. I'm not working with you on that. That's a, that is a non-starter for me. And the boys learned real quick. And I hope, by the grace of God, a time should last. If they become fathers and they have their own children, I hope they will hold their own children to that same standard. No, I'm sorry. So, so for God here to relate to them in the way that he is, I get that. Because 
there's, the, there's a difference between making a mistake and inattentiveness of, of failure and rebellion. Rebellion against your maker? Rebellion against the one that carried you? No. No and no. And so, yes, I'm not pretending that every passage here is totally easy and clean, squeaky clean. But me personally, as a father, I understand the difference between a mistake, a missed opportunity, right? A, a word spoken in haste and rebellion, defiance. And you deal with those very differently. And God here is dealing with that. Ellen White has purposefully, there's not a doubt in my mind, purposefully chosen the word defiance three times in this chapter. Okay, let's carry on. So these fortresses of Og and the Bashanites, again, I'm not sure if that's the right word, they're seemingly impregnable. And then I love this, bottom of page 529, she says, but Moses was calm and firm. And this is now at least the third or fourth time where Ellen White has made the point that in a time of what would under normal circumstances be a time of great fear and considerable you know, fright and terror that Moses is just calm, just as calm as, a, as an early morning pond without a breath of wind upon it. He is calm. He is not worried. Right? Remember when the Egyptian armies were, you might just want to write this down, this is on page 338, when the Egyptian armies were descending rapidly in pursuit, right, descending uh, on the Israelites, they are trapped between the mountains and the Red Sea, and everybody's in these sort of, you know, this heightened state of, of fear and terror, and they even begin to turn violent toward one another. She literally says, let me just quote it here, 338. I love the way she said it. I remember this. I was like, oh, that's so good. She says, um, here we go. Moses felt no fear of the consequences. Bam, I love this. So here they are. Moses is an old man by this point. I mean, you can't mess with Moses. Moses is a dude. He's a dude's dude. I mean, this is a guy who at the age of 120 just marched up with his 123-year-old brother and his brother's oldest son, his nephew Eliezer, and held his brother in his arms while his brother died and took the, the clothes off of his brother and put them on his son. I mean, this is that you don't mess with Moses. Moses is unruffled. He is, what's that great word? Indefatigable. Indef indefatigable. He, he cannot be messed with. He's not going to stop. He's not going to be afraid. He is moving forward. And so when they see Og and these giant people and you know, these impregnable homes and houses and strongholds. Moses is, man, for him, it's like getting up in the morning and toasting your bread. He knows that God has got this. You know, his heart rate, if his heart rate was 50 beats per minute, when this situation is happening, it's 50 beats per minute. He is unruffled. He is unmoved. He knows from a life, 80 plus years of following Yahweh, Yahweh has got this. And then we come to the fourth instance, fourth of seven. Here it is. Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. Moses knew this was a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, and God here says, I will fight. I've got this. He knew this was the fulfillment of the original Abrahamic promise. I mean, Moses is the one that wrote the book. Just remember this. Check this out. Moses wrote the book of Exodus while he was in the Midianite wilderness, or excuse me, the book of Genesis. Moses wrote the book of Genesis in Midian when he was in the Midianite wilderness. So, so Genesis exists. It's written. So he is, he is perfectly, intimately familiar with the fact 
that, that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full and that God's people, the descendants of Abraham, would be strangers in a strange land for 400 years. He wrote it. So he knows exactly what's happening. Unruffled, unmoved, heart rate of 50 beats per minute. God's got this. It's not self-confidence, it's confidence in God. Okay, then we come to page 530. We're, we're right here toward the end. Page 530, top of the page. Uh, here's the fifth instance, okay? Uh, the paragraph begins, the calm faith. Well, there you go, calm faith. Heart rate, 50 beats per minute. Everything's fine. God's got this. She goes on to say just a little bit later in that paragraph, not mighty giants nor walled cities, armed hosts nor rocky fortresses could stand before, second time now, the captain of the Lord's host. Second time she's used that. And then she goes through this like rapid fire sequence here. The Lord led the army. The Lord defeated the enemy. The Lord conquered in behalf of Israel. So there's your fifth instance of God doing this. I've said it already. I'll say it again. It's not a mere land acquisition. It's not indiscriminate you know, looting or, you know, no. God is legally, morally taking from the Canaanites, the Amorites, what does not, what they have forfeited, what is no longer theirs, legally or morally, they have no right to it. So then there's the judgment. It says, thus was blotted from the earth the strange people whom God had given them, uh, excuse me, who had given themselves up to iniquity and abominable idolatry, Romans 1. Right, she's, she's making this point here. And so if the Israelites were underdogs in the, in the uh, conflict with Sihon, the Amorite, they were like doubly underdogs in the conflict with Og, the people of Bashan, because she says they were giants. I mean, one of the funniest verses here is Deuteronomy chapter 3, which I thought was so funny that this like made its way into Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11 it says, for only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bed was an iron bed. Is it not in Reba of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits is its length and four cubits its width, according to the standard cubit. Standard cubit. I looked that up. That's a 13 and a half foot long bed and a seven foot wide bed. That's a big bed. 13 feet. I mean, you got to be a big dude to need a bed that's 13 feet long. 13 feet long, 7 feet wide. And I, isn't it just funny that the Bible records how big this guy's bed was? That's funny to me, right? Like Moses is writing and he's like, oh yeah, that's right. That guy had such a big bed. I got to write that in there. I, people need to remember that bed. That was such a big bed. We conquered those people whose king had a bed that was nine by four cubits. Tell me that's not funny. That's funny. Um, so now a couple sort of points here as we draw the, the chapter to a close, uh, page 530, she says, look, when they came into the land, remember that land of wild caverns, lofty precipices, yawning gulfs, and rocky strongholds, she says, they saw that the report of the spies from 40 years before concerning the promised land was actually in many respects correct. It was true. Like a lot of the stuff they had said was true. They are giants and there are these you know, you can fall into these chasms. It's like the, the, the land itself is so big. I mean, if you've ever spent much time like in, in really mountainous country, you can feel really small and you feel like you could just tumble off and disappear, right? That power that you get from feeling really small and seeing. And so in a way, you know, they weren't really exaggerating when they said the land devours the inhabitants thereof. It's, 
So she says, yeah. And then she has this great line here where she says that the Israelites, by comparison, were mere pygmies. I'll be interested to see if anybody has that as their word. Wouldn't that be a funny word for this chapter? Pygmies. Yeah, my word is pygmy. Funny. Um, so then uh, jumping to the next paragraph there that begins, when they were at the first preparing to enter Canaan, the undertaking was attended with far less difficulty than now. God had promised his people that if they would obey his voice, this is now the sixth of seven occurrences, he would go before them and fight for them. He would send hornets and drive out the inhabitants of the land. So clearly she's making the point that this is a this is God's warfare. He has a legal moral right to take what is his. He's the possessor of all lands, right? But she makes the point that actually it was harder for them to go in now because number one, remember when they refused to go in uh, 40 years earlier, they tried to go the next day and take by force what they refused to receive by faith and they were soundly defeated. She says that, that that instantly decreased the fear that people, that the occupants of Canaan had of Yahweh and of the Israelites. They thought, oh, these people aren't all that. All these reports we've heard about Yahweh delivering them from Egypt, now we got these people. So they began to prepare. I mean, it's not like they disappeared. They, they just, they just, the Israelites didn't go in at that point. They went wandering off into the wilderness, and the, the Canaanite tribes are like, okay, well, we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. And so she says, that the conquest was much more difficult than it would have originally been or than it needed to be. And this is one of the points that we brought out in the supplemental session with Dr. Peckham, and that even God allowing Israel to militarily take over the land was an accommodation. God's original plan was not that. God's original plan was that the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke would go before them. They would bring the ark, and God would just conquer these cities in a way probably like he conquered Jericho. His plan was not for them to take up a sword and start slashing and fighting. You know, they're not, they're not the three musketeers. They're a bunch of shepherds turned slaves. So every one of these battles that they win, now they will eventually become warlike. I mean, Joshua is going to be a real dude with the sword, and David was clearly a dude with the sword, but that wasn't God's plan. That's the point. This is so far down the line of God's desires and God's purposes and God's intent. He did not want them to be a warlike people. Again, at the base of Sinai, how much time did they spend in military maneuvers and hand-to-hand -hand combat training? Zero. No, what they were doing was they were learning how to eat and how to live and how to build a sanctuary and how to get along. The idea was they were going to go in by obedience to Yahweh. Um, and then finally... Uh, there's a lot of, there's a few more gems there, but I think I'll just sort of close it there. She talks about how when these obstacles are apparently insurmountable, God can still reign, God can still lead, God can still conquer. And then the seventh and final instance, right in the middle of the last paragraph, the Son of God enshrined in the cloudy pillar led the way. Led the way. So I thought it was, a, I thought it was actually quite a good chapter. Really good. And a lot of gems in there. So as you know, I didn't write these down, so this is just going to be sort of off the dome here, off the cuff. What was the point of this chapter? I would say um, the point of this chapter is to tell the story of God's conquest of Canaan by his own power and by his own strength, knowing that he had the legal moral right to give, as the possessor of all lands, to give to Israel 
what was his. He gave it to them. It was promised to them, and they had plenty of time, the Amorites and the other Canaanite tribes, to right their wrongs. And so that's what's clearly going on here. And um, that's the point, that Yahweh goes before us. The battle belongs to the Lord. Okay, what do we learn about God? Well, we learn that God is patient, but that he makes a distinction between failures and inattentiveness and rebellion and defiance, right? Like me, if my son's made a mistake, fine, I'm easy. I'm easy going. You know, if you, if you asked my sons, both of my sons, if you would say, how many times in your childhood did you see your dad really, really angry? They would say, not very many. I'm just, I'm not wired that way. I'm not, I'm not wired to get angry and upset. I mean, I don't know how many it is. They would say probably less than 10 or 15. I mean, I, I just don't get angry very much. But if you ask them, hey, how did your dad respond if you would ever sort of like be disrespectful or talk back or be defiant to your mother? They would say, ooh, ooh, you don't do that. You don't do that. So, so yes, God is patient. God is wonderful. God is merciful even to the heathen tribes of these Canaanite lands, but defiance, rebellion, no. No, sorry. Not when it's oppression, injustice, abominable idolatry and cruelty, no. No. Okay, the prayer. How do we pray this chapter? How about this? God, help me to follow when you lead into battle, when you lead into trials, when you lead into difficulty, even if it looks like Whatever the thing is that you're leading me into is impossible and insurmountable, right? This is how the people at the end in Revelation are described. These are those that follow the lamb wherever he goes. So I want to be, Lord, help me to be one of those people that follow where you lead, and not just when it's easy, but even when it looks formidable and like the outcome is not likely to be positive. If God has led me here, help me to have that you know, that heart rate monitor, if Moses had, a, had, a, had a, uh, an Apple watch, right, and, and you're about ready to go into what would otherwise be terrifying, you know, it would read 50 beats per minute. God, give me that. Okay, the practice. How do we practice this chapter? That's a little bit tricky. How do we practice this chapter? I would say... You know, it's, it's kind of similar to the prayer. I would say that we need to learn to follow where God is leading. And I know that's not super practical. I try to be as like sort of boots on the ground as possible in the practical here. But I think at the end of the day, we just need to lead where God, we need to follow where God is leading and we need to trust that he's got this. He's got this. I mean, a good example here would be death, right? Like all of us are going to face death. Yesterday I was Maybe I mentioned it on the OT with DA, but I was talking to somebody yesterday, and in a period of a very short period, I had a 46-year-old friend die unexpectedly, a 53-year-old friend die unexpectedly, and a 42-year-old friend die unexpectedly. Well, I'm 49. I'm older than two of those people. And in two out of the three cases, the people had a terrible, slow cancer, and they knew that barring a miracle, they were going to die. And then in the last few months, they knew they were going to die. We're all going to die, right? Unless we happen to be among the privileged people that will be alive when Jesus returns, we're going to die. So, so we're going to follow Jesus into death. Jesus went into death. He went in before us, 
he went into the grave. Well, we can follow him there because he conquered death. He came out the other side. And so in a very practical way, wherever God is leading, if, even if it's seemingly into death itself, God's got this. So there's a good practice. And the promise here is that uh, right here, um, the Lord led the army, the Lord defeated the enemy, the Lord conquered on behalf of Israel. He would go before them and fight for them. So the promise here is that the battle is not yours. The battle belongs to Yahweh. And I want to know what your word is, and I'm really excited about mine. All right, let's see what your word is here. Victor says, thank you, DA. Love you, brother. Can't wait to catch up, and maybe I should come visit you in New York. Are you in New York? And we can eat some New York-style pizza. I've got some friends in New York. Maybe I should come visit. Okay, what's your word here? Uh, okay, good word there. Hey, that's my doctor. <laughs> I'm just doing the bingo card here. That's right, Reiner. Forfeit, good word. Go, good word. Um, conquered, good word. Okay, Sylvia, that's my word. That is my word. Captain. Captain is my word. Advance, faith, forward, forward. I couldn't use forward because um, I'd already used it back in the uh, uh, Red Sea chapter, going through the Red Sea, forward. Hopeful, evidence, forward. Yeah, Cassandra, you live in New York too. See, I've got some people I could visit in New York. With charge. Is it only Sylvia and I that had captain? Confidence strengthened, right? Because the captain of the Lord's host. My dad was a captain. He actually retired as a major, but he was a captain for a long time in the United States Air Force. Okay, there we go. Naomi, captain. Gabby Abby says, confidence. Ooh, Sandy Patifer. You always have good words, Sandy. Calm. Very good. His calm faith. Surrender, trust, conquered. Allison says, hey, by the way, Allison, I loved your story today. Atlanta is nice. Yeah, the problem with Atlanta is the humidity and the heat combined. I can take heat. I can take humidity. I can't take the two together. Possess, possessed, forward. Oh, somebody else says captain. Who is that? Uh, it's an L. Captain. Stephen says, visit me in Pendleton. Yeah, I could go to Pendleton. Test. Scott Webb says, pygmy. <laughs> I wondered if anybody would have that. Plant-based SDA says, I'm rocking the bingo. Did anyone get bingo? Did anybody get bingo on the bingo card? Uh, somebody says, the last supplemental session was fire. Thank you. Amen, I agree. I listened to, I was a part of it, and then I listened to it. It was so good. Uh, wouldn't it be fun to do a little OT with DA reunion? We got to do that. But it would be kind of fun to just like do one in New York and then do one in Atlanta or something. Or we could just do one big one. We'd have to decide where to do it, though. All right, listen, I love you all so much. Um, captain, Jesus is our captain. It reminds me of when I was a child, uh, when I was young, my favorite movie. My, yeah, dude, Moses was a dude. My favorite movie was uh, The Dead Poets Society, a great Robin Williams movie. And... Um, Man, I really liked that movie. And one of the great scenes in that movie is where, where Robin Williams teaches his students this poem, Oh, Captain, My Captain. And then when he eventually gets fired, if you haven't seen it, it's worth seeing. He eventually gets fired. And when he gets fired, all the students stand up on their desks when he goes out of the classroom for the last time. And they all say, and it's a total 
you know, lump in the throat moment in, it's probably one of my top five favorite scenes in all movies that I've ever seen, where all of the students from this preparatory school, the boys get on their desk and they say, oh, captain, my captain. Oh, captain, my captain. Friends, that is how I feel about Jesus. Oh, captain, my captain. Oh, captain, my captain. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus, your son, our savior, our captain, the captain of the Lord's host. And Father, if Jesus goes before us and we are merely following him, then we can go anywhere, anytime. Father, we have confidence in you. And where we don't have confidence and where we lack faith and where we're tempted to distrust, Father, don't rebuke us, don't judge us, forgive us, have mercy on us. Lord, and if there's any defiance or rebellion in our heart, take it away. We don't want to be defiant. We don't want to be rebellious. And so, Father, we're asking you to, in the words of the psalmist, create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Father, we love you. We thank you. We're so thankful that, that you're not just in the business of, of conquering lands. You're in the business of conquering hearts. And Father, our hearts need to be conquered. And you have done that in Jesus, in his selfless death, in his beautiful teachings, in his wonderful way, you have conquered our hearts. We surrender to you. We love you. Uh, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.